All the time? Do that again. God is good. All the time? Do you really believe that? Today's message is suffering and the goodness of God. And does that sound like an oxymoron to you? There are times when I say God is good all the time, and it sounds sweet. And then sometimes, you know, just you're drowning, and you feel like you can't see the shore. Is God still good to you? I mean, this isn't my message. Now, there's a Cub shirt. Anybody wearing a Cubs jacket can talk about suffering and the goodness of God. This is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Congratulations to the Cubbies in the World Series. Well, 45, I think, last time. Yeah. We live in a world that says God wants to bless you. They want to, God wants to bless you with stuff. God wants to bless you with health. God wants to bless you. And if you're not blessed, it's because you've done something wrong. You don't have faith. You're mixed up. Today I want to talk about suffering and the goodness of God and kind of have a little bit of an introduction to this. It's going to go back into history with 1 Peter, but first let me just step back. There's a couple of errors we run into a lot in church, a lot, when it comes to suffering and the goodness of God. I have one of those screens up there that will talk about this. Does it take more courage to walk in the dark holding God's hand or to fall apart when tough times come? Ladies and gentlemen, the church tends to fall into about three different errors. One of them is, every once in a while we fall into this fatalistic approach to life. Well, I guess if God is in control, there's nothing to be done, so, oh well, everything's out of control. There is a second error that we'll fall into that says it's all karma. You get what you deserve. If something bad has happened to you, it's because you're a bad person. You want to see that really exemplified, you see it in the life of Job. Way back in the Old Testament, that chronologically oldest book of the Bible, Job was a man who was wealthy and who served God and things were going very well for him, thank you. And all of a sudden his world fell apart in one day. So the Bible says that one day as Job's minding his own business, a guy comes up who just looks like he has been beat to death and he says, Job, you wouldn't believe it, man. These storms came and they wiped out all of our crops. We don't have anything left for the livestock. You're ruined, man. In fact, it killed all your servants. I'm the only one who survived. As he's still speaking, another man shows up and says, Job, you wouldn't believe it. Raiders came. They took all your livestock. All of it. They killed all your servants. I'm the only one left. A few minutes later, while he's still reeling and trying to figure out what's going on, the worst of all came. Another man showed up and said, Job, your kids were all under one roof, and the house collapsed on them, and every one of your kids are dead. What do you do then? Is God still good? Job went in his house, and his wife took a very fatalistic approach to this. She said, Job, curse God and die. His friends came and took a karma approach. Job, what did you do? Man, you had to do something to get God upset at you. You have to be the worst sinner in the world for these bad things to happen to you. 
It's a rare person who can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That, my friends, is a faith walk. There's a third error, and I'll just mention it real quickly. I think sometimes the church is very, very close. We walk on the edge of idolatry without meaning to. And I say this very gently because it's something that I keep finding in myself. A person wakes up one day, and they are just stressed to death over something like elections. (laughs) Coming up in a couple of weeks. You know why we're so stressed? Because somewhere along the line, we've gotten the idea that government is going to provide for us or protect us. Protection and provision are to come from our God. And when it comes from any other group, we are in trouble. Then we're just like the world, and we fall right on the edge of idolatry. There's other people who say, I don't trust government. I'm going to step on somebody's toes here. I I don't mean this in a Second Amendment way, but there are people who trust their guns more than their God. Who will say, if I'm going to be protected and I'm going to have provision, it will come from Smith & Wesson. If you trust your gun more than your God to protect and provide for you, you are right on the edge of idolatry. The church needs to stand apart. It needs to be unique. It needs to be separate. It needs to say, I believe in the goodness of God. I believe in the provision of God. I believe in the protection of God. And by the way, just so you know, I'm not just speaking off the top of my head. You know, Psalm 146.3 says, do not trust in princes. Do not trust in the sons of men. If I were in Psalm 118, it would say it is better, it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in men. If I were in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, Psalm 27 would remind us, do not put your faith in your weapons. If I were in Psalm 121, I would read, lift up my eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. That's the Christian approach to life. I'm going to take a walk back in history with this. Steve made a, Pastor Steve made a really profound statement a few weeks ago. And what he was saying was, it is not enough when difficult times come for me to say, okay, I will follow Jesus' example and just gut it out. I probably won't. What I need at that point is my relationship to be right with God. I need to have a relationship that's going to see me through. It was July 18th, A.D. 1964, A.D. 064, pardon me, that just outside of the great Colosseum in Rome, a fire broke out. Fires break out in big cities all the time in the ancient world. Houses built close together, they were combustible. They certainly didn't have fire departments as we know them. You know, remember the old great Chicago fire people talk about with Miss O'Leary's cow? It didn't take much for entire areas of a city to burn. This fire was significant. It wasn't the only great fire of Rome, but it was one that affected the church dramatically. For as that fire burned, it burned out of control. It burned for six days and seven nights. Six days and seven nights, a fire burned through a major city in Rome, Italy. Entire districts burned to the ground. At least four of the great wards of Rome burned to the ground. Nero was the emperor, the last of the great Caesars. Nero was not even in Rome when the fire broke out. He rushed back to the city. He tried to see what he could do, but it was very limited what he could do. But politically, 
if you want to use a really good pun, he got on the hot seat. Politically, the people stood up to him and they started pointing a finger at him and they said, Nero, this is your fault, man. Remember back a few years ago when Hurricane Katrina devastated parts of uh, New Orleans? People looked at President Bush. What was their response to him? Your fault. Your response to this, whatever you did, good or bad, man, you are a messed up human being and your fault. That's what was happening to Nero. And I don't care how big of an emperor you are, you don't take that kind of pressure lightly. So he did the great political move. Some things never change. First you spin the news, and then you deflect as fast as you can. So what he did was he looked at the one group that was large enough to make a difference that had no political protection whatsoever. What he did was he said, you guys, you know what I heard? It was the Christians. That weird little group of Christians, they started a fire and they burned your houses down. They have attacked us. They are now enemies of the state. And for the first time in, in the church's history, they became enemies of the state. It was the first of seven great persecutions of the church. They would last from A.D. 64 all the way up to Constantinople a few hundred years later. This persecution was atrocious. We read about ISIS and what's going on in the Middle East. Rome was worse. Tacitus, who was one of those great historians of the day, as he wrote about those events, he said uh, very specifically, Nero fashioned the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn apart by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight has expired. Nero was famous for dipping Christians in oil and hanging them in his garden and setting them on fire at night. This guy was cruel. There was a church in Rome, and the church was in trouble. It was in serious trouble. Nero was in power, by the way, for four years after that fire. Four years. You know how many of the apostles, by the way, were left at this point? Probably three. The rest of them have died in faraway lands preaching the gospel. Peter, Paul, John are still alive. Paul happens to be sitting in Nero's jail at the time. He'd been arrested a few years back, charged with a crime, appealed to Nero to have his appeal heard. He's sitting in Nero's jail when he is declared an enemy of the state and a head of one of, of an enemy organization. Paul was brought before Nero. He was charged with a crime. He was tortured and beheaded. Nero outlived Paul. Is God still good to the church? By some of the teaching we hear today, God had forsaken his people for this to happen. John, by the way, they tried to kill. Apparently they messed it up. Put him in a vat of boiling oil, and when it didn't kill him, they sent him out to a prison island called Patmos to live out his life. Peter, meanwhile, 
is running around somewhere either in Jerusalem or over in Asia Minor. The church is in a lot of trouble. The church is in serious trouble, and Peter has a commission. You know what Peter's commission was? Remember just after the resurrection, Peter has denied Jesus. Peter's out there, he's fishing. He's minding his own business. Jesus caught up with Peter. You remember what he told him? Peter, you love me? Peter said, yeah, I love you. He said, okay, feed my sheep, man. And someday look at the uses of the word love in there because Jesus met Peter right where he was. Those, those uses of the word kept changing. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Feed my lambs. Jesus sent Peter out as a shepherd, as a shepherd to take care of the flock. And the flock is in trouble. So Peter did something highly unusual. He went to Rome. When everyone else is running from serious persecution, Peter went into Rome. The Catholic Church will call Peter the first bishop of Rome. You know why? The word bishop means shepherd. Peter went to Rome. He reestablished the church. He took the sheep that were being slaughtered. He took the sheep that were being hunted, and he gathered them back together, and he reestablished the First Baptist Church of Rome. Whereupon, by the way, they called their first great pastor of this newly established church. His name was Linus, and Linus is either crazy or extraordinarily brave. I don't know which, because there's some jobs you just say no to. But Linus took on the job as the First Baptist pastor of the First Baptist Church of Rome during this persecution time. Peter, meanwhile, is literally preaching Jesus in the streets of Rome in strict defiance of Nero. He was, in fact, arrested, charged with a crime, ordered, crucified, and his only request, history tells us, was to be crucified upside down so he would not die in the same manner of his Lord. When you read the prison epistles of Paul in your New Testament, you are reading the last known writings we have of this man before Nero killed him. When you read First and Second Peter, you're reading basically his last words. And you're reading the words of a man who was talking to people who would have a young man come to Peter and say, Peter, my mom and dad were just taken out of their house, taken over by Nero, and burned alive in his garden. Come on, man, talk to me. That's what First Peter's about. First Peter is the story of a dad who would come up to Peter saying, they just took my wife and daughter and sold them as slaves. And who knows what they're doing to them. Man, we need to arm ourselves. We need to take care of this. First Peter was written to people under the duress, under the worst circumstances we can imagine. And sometimes I think we make this stuff a little too pure. We, we take the history out of it and we forget we're talking to real people. So how does, Peter, how does Peter answer a group of people who are suffering, who are hurting? You know what he says? Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Peter looked at people who were at their worst moment in their life, he pointed them to Jesus and he said, isn't God good? And isn't he good to you? Isn't that an amazing statement? By the time we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's reaching a crescendo. He has talked about what it means to be a Christian under these circumstances. All he has to say about 
Nero is, honor your emperor. Honor him. That's all he says about him. He keeps taking them back to their God and to each other. And it reminds them to love God and to love each other. To honor each other. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. We're reminded of these, this. Difficult days are going to come. You know this. We are all going to experience good times and bad times. We are going to have days we could do without. I'm, I'm usually amused, and, and you'll hear me say this all the time. I love the valley. You love the valley. Take my turn. I hate the valley. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> I may grow in it. It may be a good place of blessing for me, but frankly, you can have it. <laughs> I love mountaintops. I like glory. I like when things are going well, thank you. So if you want to trade with me, let's do it. <laughs> but if I have to go through the valley, if I have to go through the valley, and I'm going to be reminded of this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, difficult days will come. And I love how Peter said that because he addressed a group of people and he said, oh, my dear friends, this is, this is a shepherd talking to people, and it's a, his heart is just right there. He's putting his love on the table. He says, dear friends, remember, Fiery trials are coming. Don't be surprised. That word fiery trials is that word for a smelter. This is where the dross is being burned off of precious metal. This is where we're going to see what you're made of. Difficult days will come. Verse 14 even adds an extra little blessing for Christians. And don't be surprised when they don't like you even more because you're Christians. <laughs> it's going to happen. It is a fact of your life. It is a fact of life. We will have good days and bad days. We will have good times and bad times. Go to a wedding, and what are we going to remind you? We are to stick with each other in good times and bad, right? Sickness and health. Richer or poorer, those days will come. Peter reminds a group of people in 1 Peter chapter 4, we are not of this world. And the world hates the Lord, and the world hates our gospel. It's going to be a little difficult. When you don't bow your knee, bow your knee to the world, they will, as Nero did, declare you an enemy and treat you accordingly. They did no less for Jesus. They will do it to us. Beyond that, people will get sick. We live in a sin world. We are broken people. We don't want to be broken, but we are. And the curse of sin was death. Our bodies decay. We get sick. We lose loved ones. We lose jobs. We have stresses. We have challenges. This is not strange. It is not unexpected. It is not karma, and nobody sinned. Man, that gets me frustrated when somebody points a finger and says, well, they deserved it. No, they didn't. <laughs> Maybe they did. But generally speaking, they did not. This is not the time to be shocked or surprised or discouraged or depressed. This is God who is with you 
in the middle of a fiery trial that you needed to know was calming. Difficult days will calm. Second, difficult days are going to cause rejoicing. Woo! <laughs> rejoicing. Eddie talked about that in Sunday school. I wish you'd come talk now. <laughs> rejoicing. I know that's crazy, right? You know, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, I think you brought up in Sunday school. Kind of helps us with that picture, doesn't it? Because what it says is, keep your eyes on Jesus. The one who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners, lest you become weary and faint in the way. You've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And we've, we've forgotten the exhortation of our Father. Hey, kids, despise not the chastening of the Lord or faint when you are rebuked of him. Ladies and gentlemen, we look to Jesus, and we remember this, that when difficult days come, we saw Jesus, who was joyful, not on the cross, but in the joy that was set before him, because he knew that he was in, right in the middle of his father's hand, in the middle of his father's plan, and where his father was, there's joy. And where his father is, there is peace. And where his father is, there is victory. And it may not be today, and it may not be tomorrow, and it may not be the day after, but this life is a short time, and my joy's coming. And your joy is coming. And every once in a while, Christians need to be reminded of the fact that difficult days cause rejoicing because they put us, they put us right into the arms of our God. They put us in the arms of our God where he can lift us up on eagle's wings. And he'll love you through it. Verse 13 is rather rather spectacular. It is the mark of a Christian. What he said, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, and you're also going to rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. You are his bride. You are his chosen. You are his beloved, and he can't wait to see you. That's what we rejoice in. I don't rejoice a bit in the hard times, none of the difficulty, but I rejoice in God, my Savior, who's going to see me through it. There's an old song. I really kind of like this old song, one of them old fiddle songs, and it says, he's still in the fire. It's a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, if, if four went in and three came out, where'd that fourth man go? And he's still in the fire. He's walking in the flames, and he'll be there beside you when you call upon his name. Those are good songs. I'm going to camp here a minute. Who am I in Christ? Because this is what matters. Who, are we, who am I? Who are you in Jesus Christ? How do I see Christ? And I want to remind us, just for a minute, who we are in Christ. You are loved. You are loved. And one more time, you are loved. Before God created the world, before he measured its circumference, before he created the stars, before he numbered them by names, God, did, God you know what he did, and the Bible tells me this, God looked into eternity future, and you know what he saw? you. God saw you as an expectant parent. 
And the picture I get in my Bible is so clear, it's unbelievable. The picture I get in my Bible is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they're trying to stay, and God the Father nudges his son and says, look, look, she's almost here. She's coming. My baby's on the way. That's the picture that the Bible gives of you. And it tells me that. It says before God created the world, he knew your name, he knew what you would be doing, he created you to be exactly who you were going to be. Psalm, and the psalmist, you remember, I will praise him for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, marvelous all thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. By the time he's all done, you know what the psalmist is saying? God looked into eternity future, he looked at Ray and he said, he's going to have blue eyes and no hair. <laughs> Perfect, just what I wanted. Okay, now somewhere along the line, I think we have forgotten that. We get really hung up on theology. God is perfect in himself, and God has no need of anything else. Yeah, you know what God needs? He needs you. Because somewhere there was an ache. Somewhere there was this, this absolute longing for a relationship with you. Does that sound like bad theology to you? I'll be accused of it, but I want to tell you something. There's a lot of facets as we look at our relationship with God, and this is one that matters to me, you are a child of God. The Bible says that's literal. He came into his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name. The Bible says that you are such a child of God that eventually Jesus said, I'm going home to prepare a room for you. When I go fix that room up for you, I'm going to come back and bring you home to be with me because you know why? Where I am, I want you there with me. This is your room. This is a place I fixed up just for you. Ladies and gentlemen, when the Bible talks about God, he talks about it in a very personal way. And people mess this up for history. They have messed it up for history, and it bothers me. Way back in the Old Testament, all the way in the beginning, where was God? He was sitting right in the middle of the garden. Where was God when Adam and Eve sinned? He's still walking in the garden in the cool of the day saying, Adam, where are you? Come on, man. What are you doing? People looked at God and they made him so holy, so separate, and he, should, and he is and he should be. And I'm not taking away from the holiness of God here. And I want you to understand, people got so hung up on who God is that they said, we can't even speak his name. If I say God's name, they might end up taking it in vain, and he may strike me down. Because, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is, remember, keep his name holy. So I won't even speak it. So that name, Yahweh, became Jehovah. Something people could say so they wouldn't accidentally say God's name. You know what God was saying in the meantime? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is relationship. And these words that I command you this day will be in your heart, and you'll teach them to your children. And you'll talk about them. By the time he was in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, you know what his judgment of Israel was so simple? I loved you, and the people said, no, right, sure you did. And he said, I did, I chose you. I chose you. I love you. By the time Jesus came, he looked at his disciples, and you know what he said? When you pray, you pray to your Father, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. His name is Dad. 
His name is Daddy. Somewhere in our theology, we need to come back to that. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. We're His kids. We are beloved. Jeremiah 1.5 talked about, I formed you in the womb. I formed you in the womb before you were born. I had, I had set you apart already. Psalm 3, I'm sorry, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Psalm 71, verse 6. Psalm 22, 10. All these verses talk about the fact that God knew you before you were even born and wanted a relationship with you. I said this last week and I'll say it again. Psalm chapter 68, verse 5 was transformational for me personally. And everyone has something different in their lives. I believe this stuff. Somewhere, I came from one of those broken homes. A lot of people come from broken homes. But you know what Psalm 68.5 says? I will be a father to the fatherless. I will be a husband to the widow. Can you get more personal than that? You take a kid who's lost and tell him God's your daddy. And it makes a difference. I'm not a good kid. I'm not asking anybody to understand that I'm special. Because I want to tell you something. I am a kid who is rebellious as the day is long. I not only confess that I'm a child, I also confess the fact that every once in a while, I'll look at my dad, and I am the kid who is stomping my foot saying, you're my dad, and you aren't giving me what I want, and I don't like it. I have that relationship that I get actually angry for weeks at a time, and God's saying, you're not doing what I want, and I'm your kid, and you're supposed to. The only reason I can do that is because I have the relationship in the first place that tells me I'm allowed to. But here's why it matters to me, because there's other times in my heart when my heart is broken. Absolutely broken. And I can come to the throne of grace, and I can crawl into his arms and say, I could use a hug. Now that relationship matters. So we talk about suffering in the goodness of God. We speak of it in very personal terms. But those dark days are the days that drive me into the arms of Jesus. Peter came to those people in Rome and said, quit looking at your hurts. Quit looking at Rome. It hurts. But take a moment and look at God. Remember who He is. Remember that when you were a sinner, He pursued you. Remember that when you were dying, He gave you His life. Remember, He said in 1 Peter, Used to, you didn't even have a name, but he gave you his name. You weren't a people, but now you're people of God. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, a people who have been called by God, for God, in God. You're Christians. That's special, folks. 
That's what we rejoice in. And I look at that relationship, and I, I, I always picture this in this way. I went to the White House a few years ago on one of those visits. I was allowed to walk through about six rooms, you know. Couldn't even use the bathroom, I asked. <laughs> yes, I did, and no, you can't. Um, I will tell you, I, it is not much of a relationship. And if I wanted to say, I'm going to head up to the West Wing now and go talk to uh, President Obama, there's a whole host of people in between me and him. Starting with the uniformed Marines and running through the ununiformed uh, security forces, you aren't getting within a country mile of that man if he don't want you there. You think his daughters have that problem? His little girls want to see him? They walk right past those Marines. They walk right past Secret Service. And they look at him and they don't say, Mr. President. Now, he does all kinds of things that affect me. He makes all kinds of decisions that I have to live under, good or bad. But I still have no relationship with him. But his daughters, they can walk right up there and say, hey, Dad, I want. Because <laughs> they're kids. Hey, Dad, I need. And he hears them. And he sees them. And he's proud of them. That's our relationship with our God. So we invite you today to run to your Father. To consider how blessed we are to be His children. And when you're hurting, let Him hold you. And it gets to that third point that says difficult days will reveal our character. And it will reveal. When He burns off that dross, we're going to see what's left. The Bible says some people are going to be saved. They're going to be saved like they went through a fire. They're going to be saved with nothing much because they lived for themselves and they had no idea at all who their relationship was with Christ. Verse 16 through 18, it kind of pulls us back to reality and he says, be proud to be a Christian. Be a child of God. You are precious. You are beloved. And the tough times are going to be our judge. They will judge us. They're going to test us. We're going to see what we're made out of. Do we wilt or do we stand? Do we rejoice knowing that our daddy is going to comfort us and heal us, that he's going to love us through the valley, or do we curse him? Judgment begins in the house of God. This is where we find out who we are, because we have to know who we are if we're going to touch a world out there. If I'm going to see a person out there who's hurting, you know what I have to be able to say? I was hurting too, and my God took care of me and brought me through, and he can do that for you. But ladies and gentlemen, if I cannot say that for myself, I cannot say it for you. And so I have to come through that fire. I have to be judged. I have to be purified. I have to reach that point where I know who I am in Christ because I have a world out there who is hurting worse than I am. There's a world out there who needs Jesus, and we are the ones who are going to take Jesus to our world, and we're going to take him to the world based on what he has done for us. Difficult days reveal characters. They purify us. They burn off the unimportant stuff. They bring us to the throne. They throw us into the arms of our dad, and it shows that what we really thought, that God was good. In the end, your God has never let you down, and he won't. Peter reminds us, you think persecution is bad. What do you think is going to happen? What's in store for the unbeliever? 
Peter said, you know, take the long view of things sometimes. The difficult time you're in right now is bad, but those folks out there who are creating problems for you, and that includes, by the way, Satan. I love that at the cross, what was judged was sin, death, and hell. And Jesus took those keys. What he says is, you're in your Father's hands, and I have the keys. You are safe. Others are not. What will become of the unbeliever? Your time of grief has an end, and then comes a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I have been promised that in this life I will have persecution. But I've been promised that Jesus said he's overcome this world. What he also said was this, quit worrying about the wrong stuff. The stuff you're going to eat, the stuff you're going to drink, the clothes you're going to wear. Who's going to provide for you? That's dad's business. He's already got it covered. You worry about the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you. What he said was, which of you if, you, if you went to your dad and you asked him for a fish, would give you a stone? Don't you know your heavenly father's already taken care of you? Let it go. Let it go. Let him love you. You worry about the kingdom of God. The unbeliever faces an eternity of suffering. You face an eternity where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. The former things are passed away. And the one who sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. That's your future. That's your hope. That's our joy. So I conclude this with this. My favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans chapter 8. And it asks that question, if God be for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. By the time he's done with that chapter, he looks at, he looks at a group of people and he says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword... Stuff that's above us, stuff that's beneath us. And nah, man, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. For I am persuaded that neither life or death or principalities or power or things below or things beneath or things under the earth or things above the earth, nothing's going to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. That, my friends, is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that endures, a relationship that matters. It is why we can say... Suffering reveals the goodness of God. And I hope today you have that relationship. And we're going to close with verse 19 because verse 19 needs absolutely no explanation. So those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Let's stand and pray, please. Father, you've been good to us, and sometimes it's easy to forget that. 
Father, you're with us, and sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of on this thing on my own, and I'm trying to figure it out, and I'm, I'm confused and frustrated. Help me, Father, to come back and just kind of jump into your arms. Father, as we leave church today, help us to leave today just kind of looking at that relationship, saying, I trust you, I love you, and I want to be part of your kingdom. Father, I just pray you would take those tough times in my life and, and, and give me that victory so that I can turn around and help somebody else when they have theirs. If I can do that, it's been a good day. But Father, if somebody's here and they've never known Jesus and they've never, never have any relationship with him at all, just pray, Father, you would just turn their lives around. Help them to see their sin. Convict them. Father, take them to their knees so that they can confess that Jesus is Lord and believe God's raised him from the dead and be saved. Father, thank you for an opportunity to come and worship today. Thank you for the church. I appreciate this place and this time. Thank you for each person here. Please bless them. We pray in Jesus' name. You know, the Bible also said, 